It's a real pleasure to have Ken Roberts with us. Uh, Ken's research and teaching interest has been on populism, social movements, political parties. First in Latin America, then he started to do comparisons between Southern Europe and Latin America. And now when Trump came around, he's using all of the wisdom and learned knowledge that he has to try to make sense of Trump in a comparative perspective. Um, He's the author of a series of books, let me mention a few of them, Changing Course in Latin America, Party Systems in the Neoliberal Era, published by Cambridge. And his first book was Deepening Democracy, the Modern Left and Social Movements in Chile and Peru. He's also the editor of the best book on the resurgence of the left in Latin America. So the title of the book is The Resurgence of the Latin American Left. And he also has a very interesting book on the diffusion of social movements. Um, Ken's work on populism has been very creative and uh, very original. His first article was published in 1995 in World Politics. And in that article, he analyzed Fujimori as a special case of populism that combined populist politics with neoliberal policies. And it was a theoretical attempt, or in a, it was the one of the first theoretical attempts to decouple the study of populism from very deterministic understandings of, of politics as a reflection of socioeconomic structures. So Ken has been analyzing what we can call the logic of populism for a long period of time. His work is also fundamental to understand the different types of political crises that can end in populism. So he has differentiated different types of populist crises that can end in populism. And, and he's currently linking Bless you. He's currently linking different types of populism to varieties of capitalism. So before giving the floor to, to Ken, I want to announce that I will be teaching a course on Trump in comparative perspective in the fall. So all of you who want to take the course or let your students know about it, please do so. Ken, so much. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Carlos, for the, the general introduction. It's a, a pleasure to, to be back in, in Kentucky, and I hope you bring me back again. I'd like to come back next fall and take your class. That sounds really fun, and, and if I do that, maybe I'll have a chance to win back some of the money that I lost yesterday afternoon at Keeneland. So I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know why I'm, I'm drawn to uh, the underdogs and the long shots. Maybe it's the populist streak within me or something. But, uh, but anyway, it's great to, great to be back in, in Kentucky. So let, let me start by saying that um, I, you know, I'm going to give a talk today that is very different from the kind of talks that I you know, that traditionally give. I, I never really thought that I would find myself giving a talk um, on this topic because, as, as Carlos said, I'm a, a specialist in comparative politics, uh, in particular Latin American politics. And um, you know, this talk is really an effort to try to, to pull together some of the things that, uh, that I've learned about in studying populism and democracy and challenges to, the, to democracy in other parts of the world to try to reflect upon the current moment within the United States politically and the challenges that we see in, in contemporary American politics. Uh, but I'm, I'm really part of a, a generation of scholars that was groomed and trained to study what came to be known as the third wave of democratization. All right, so it's a, a wave of democratization 
that got underway starting in Southern Europe in the mid-1970s, and then it, it jumped to Latin America by the early 1980s, and then eventually to Eastern Europe and East Asia and parts of Africa in the late 1980s and early 1990s. And this so-called third wave of, of, uh, of, democracy, of democratization it really groomed an entire generation of scholars who learned how to study democratic transitions uh, and democratic consolidation, efforts to deepen democracy. And early in my career, when I think back, you know, reflect upon those days, you know, I think there was a lot of heady optimism, maybe naive optimism, that democracy was the wave of the future, or that maybe even democracy was the only game in town, and that you found democracy, some sort of democracy emerging in many different places of the world. Uh, but ultimately, I think that that heady optimism is, is very much a thing of the past. And the, the general sentiment within the study of comparative politics these days is quite different. So I'm going to try to talk about that a bit and talk about you know, what it has to say to us uh, for trying to understand where we are in the United States today politically. Uh, first of all, one of the things to, to keep in mind, in, you know, I mentioned this so-called third wave of democratization. Most scholars would argue that it, that it crested and perhaps began to slide into reverse about 10 or 15 years ago. All right, so there's been a lot of work that has looked at patterns of what is called democratic backsliding and the spread of what we call competitive authoritarianism. And competitive authoritarianism is really uh, their hybrid regimes where you have some democratic features. So there may, may be competitive elections, but they take place on a playing field that is so tilted and, and un, uneven uh, that it's clear that, there's, that the system is set up to, to, to advantage a particular party over others. Right, so there's a lot of work that has been done on these new forms of authoritarianism that have at least some, some of the maskings of democracy but are not really uh, fully democratic kinds of regimes. In terms of the trend lines then, Freedom House reports that its global index of civil rights and political liberties has declined for 12 consecutive years now um, in the most recent report they gave out for two, the, the year, you know, covering 2017, 71 countries experienced some, some sort of decline in their ranking on the, the Freedom House indicators. And as, as we're seeing these, you know, this slippage, this erosion of democracy in, in different parts of the world, it's important to recognize this is mostly taking place from what you might call challenges from within. In other words, challenges from within the democratic institutions themselves. Right? So it's a different kind of erosion of democracy from what we used to study in Latin America, where you'd study military coups or revolutions, where you had actors who were outside the system that would overthrow a democratic regime. Right? What most of the work is talking about in recent times is something quite different. Right? There, are, there are parties and leaders who are elected into office through democratic means, right? but then they use democratic institutions to undermine democracy itself. Right? So these are actors who are playing within the democratic arena who use democratic institutions for anti-democratic ends. Right? So this is a, a prevalent tendency, not really something that we anticipated when we began doing this work on the so-called third wave of democratization. So the question that I'm trying to pose in some of the work that I'm doing with, with other collaborators in recent times is whether or not the U.S. is immune to these kinds of pressures. Right? We're all aware that we live in a period of extraordinary political conflict and polarization and, and I would say uncertainty in U.S. politics. Uh, but I think what's new is that really in recent years, for the first time in memory, you see serious scholars posing the question of what you might call the regime question, 
in American politics. In other words, is democracy itself endangered? Right, so most prominently, the book some of you probably have read, Levitsky and Ziblatt's book on how democracies die, a number of other books that have basically posed this question. This is not a question that we traditionally pose in the United States. Uh, and I, in fact, I think as, as a political scientist, my colleagues in the American politics subfield, I think, find it, uh, find it very challenging really to pose this question. They're accustomed to being able to study American politics at the micro level. So you, you can look at public opinion, you, you can look at voting behavior, you can look at legislative roll call voting, right? all kinds of sophisticated models to explain micro-level politics, all assuming that you can hold the regime itself constant, right? that we have a set of rules in play and that you can take for granted that that regime will remain in place. And so the fact that you have people now asking this question, the so-called regime question, I think is a novelty uh, uh, for the study of American politics. Now, it's important to keep in mind as you ask that question, no democratic regime as long-standing or as wealthy as that in the United States has ever broken down. There's never been a, a regime this long-standing that is, that is broken down. Uh, and obviously, you know, without question, U.S. democracy has weathered threats in the past, right, from the, the Civil War to the, you know, you remember the, the McCarthy era in the 1950s, you know, the challenges of desegregation, Watergate, so certainly we have seen challenges to democracy in the past. But I think the question is, is it different today? You know, is there something different going on that we need to be concerned about? And I think there are clear warning signs. All right, we see increasingly routine violations of democratic norms. We've seen the rise of anti-establishment forms of populist and autocratic leadership that openly flaunt democratic norms. And I think perhaps most worrisome, you see the discrediting and efforts to manipulate regime and societal institutions for partisan ends. Right, so institutions like the, the electoral system itself, the courts, the FBI, congressional investigative commissions, the, the media, etc. We could go on and on. Right, so in many, there seem to be sort of an accumulation of signs that things have changed and that the political dynamics are somewhat different than what we've seen in the past. Now, if, if there's a silver lining to this, I'm not sure that there is, but if there is, I think one of it, you know, in sort of narrow professional terms, there's a whole new dialogue that is going on between scholars who specialize in the study of, of American democracy and scholars who work on other parts of the world. And so there's a, you know, very interesting dialogue where some of us have been trying to draw comparative insights from the study of populism and patterns of democratic backsliding or democratic erosion in other parts of the world. So people that work on Russia, on Venezuela, on Turkey, on Hungary, uh, other places as well, uh, increasingly are trying to understand the conditions under which democratic institutions are more or less resilient in the face of these populist and autocratic challenges. Right? So I'm, I'm part of a, a couple of different scholarly networks that are trying to, to encourage this dialogue between comparativists and Americanists to try to think seriously uh, about the nature of threats to democracy, and in particular then about the question of democratic resiliency. Right? What are the conditions under which democratic institutions are resilient and can protect themselves from these challenges, and what are the conditions under which they begin to break down? Okay, so a lot of this, of course, has to do with the, the bigger question of, of populism. It becomes part of this debate between the comparativists and Americanists revolves around the whole question of, of populism and populist leadership. So I want to talk about a couple of ways in which I think the understanding of populism or the usage of the term populism is different 
in, in American politics, in American, not just, not just academic circles, but in broader political discourse in the United States. A few things that make it a little bit different. One of them that sort of jumps out at me, and this has not gotten a lot of scholarly attention, but I, I find it quite interesting. Uh, in, in virtually every other part of the world, populism is a derogatory term, right? It's an epithet that you use against your, your adversaries when you want to discredit them. Right, so populism is widely associated with political dog, uh, demagoguery, with irresponsible policies, etc. It's quite rare, though, in the United States, you actually see the term being embraced by political actors in the United States, right, who will actually declare themselves to be populist. And you see this actually on both the left and the right in the United States. So here's one example. Donald Trump speaking, speaking with, Steve, uh, with Steve Bannon. Trump didn't quite get the label, didn't quite get the term right. He called it popularist rather than populist. But basically, this was Bannon trying to convince Trump that what Trump is really all about is being a populist. And you know, once Bannon tried to explain that, and Trump said, yeah, that's what I am. I, I like that. Um, so you see that on the right. And here's Barack Obama in 2016. And here's Obama saying, you know, and Obama's objecting. To anybody calling Trump a populist, and Obama's saying, no, I'm the real populist, because you know, populism means it's I won't read the whole thing, you can see it, but he, he's saying, I care, I, you know, I care about people, I want to make sure every kid in America has the same opportunities that I have. I care about poor people who are working really hard and don't have a chance. I care about the workers being able to have a collective voice, get their fair share of the pie, etc. Alright, so here's Obama saying, I'm the real populist, the other guy's a fake. And you know, there's Steve Bannon convincing Donald Trump that he's he's really a populist. All right, so this is you. I, I don't, I, Carlos, can you think anywhere else in the world where you would have figures, you know, saying I'm the real populist and you're not? Now, this is quite quite unusual uh, because, as I said, in most parts of the world, you know, nobody calls themselves a populist. You call the other guy a populist when you want to discredit them. All right, so what what is why is it that we have this, you know, this unusual pattern in the United States? I think part of it. It goes back uh, and has deep roots in, in our, our own political history. So 19th century agrarian populism in the United States, which was a grassroots movement from below for social and political reform. Um, and a lot of people still sort of, you know, have this very positive notion in mind because that movement referred to itself as, as populist. So there, there are these deep roots. I also think there's a tendency to use the concept of populism in the United States as one of many euphemisms for left. You ever know, and, I, and I don't know whether this is a legacy of the Cold War or what, but you know, you'll hear Fox News use the concept of left to try to discredit somebody, but the left in the U.S. rarely calls, calls itself a left. Uh, it's some, you know, we use all these euphemisms, and so there's liberals. Nowhere else in the world are liberals considered to be leftists. I mean, liberals believe in free markets and individual liberties, and you know, liber liberalism is not on the left in broader comparative terms. So we call liberals the left, or we use progressive as a way to avoid calling something on the left, or we use populist. And so I have colleagues and friends who, you know, who say what the U.S. really needs today is a good left-wing populism, that we need a populism that is a true populism, and, but they don't want to call it left. Um, so I think there's a tendency to use populism uh, you know, as a way to avoid calling something that believes in redistributive policies or social welfare policies, to avoid calling it left, we simply call it populist. Right, and then, of course, we have this debate over, you know, a debate in the U.S. is whether or not Trump is a real populist. And so you can see Paul Krugman, you know, read the articles and, you know, the op-eds from Paul Krugman in the New York Times, and he's saying Donald Trump's not a real populist because, 
you know, because he doesn't support health care for the poor, whatever, whatever it might be. So he's saying that his policies are not, are not populist, and so he therefore doesn't qualify. But ultimately then, there's a, there's a tension between the way in which populism is often understood in the United States and the way it's understood in comparative politics. For the most part, in comparative politics, and Carlos alluded to this, work we've been doing in Latin America for over 20 years now, trying to decouple our understanding of populism from any, any specific set of, ec of economic policies, and to try to think of populism in terms of its political logic. Right, so to try to understand the political logic of populism, I tend to go back to Leclau, uh, the Argentine political theorist, right, who talked about populism essentially as the structuring of political space along a binary antagonistic divide between a virtuous people and some sort of nefarious power elite. In other words, with this understanding of the political logic, populism is basically an invocation of popular sovereignty. All right? It's an appeal to the people, and it's, a, it's an appeal to the people who perceive themselves to have been abandoned or neglected by this power elite. Right? And it's basically arguing that, you know, that the people need to be empowered once again. Right? So it's sort of a, a redemptive invocation of popular sovereignty. Okay, and this kind of, this redemption, this redemptive invocation of popular sovereignty, it can be on the left or the right. It really depends on how you construct the people, right? Discursively, who are the people that you're referring to, and who or what is that nefarious elite against which you are, against which, which you are, are fighting against, right? So ultimately then, populism can emerge in different contexts, it can take different forms, and that populist political logic can be attached to a wide range of public policies. Right? So there's no specific set of policies that defines a political leader or movement as populist. Right? It's not the policies themselves. Uh, different kinds of policies, they may be instrumental to a populist project, they may serve that project, or they may be incidental to it. They may have really nothing to do with what makes that particular leader or movement populist. Right, but ultimately then, in comparative politics, for the most part, we have a different way of thinking about populism that, that is really anchored in this political logic rather than any specific set of economic policies. So I think that's one of the, one, you know, sort of, you know, important way in which thinking about populism in the United States is rather different from what we see in other parts of the world. Another key distinction, or the second thing that is sort of distinctive in the U.S., is we've seen in recent times the emergence of political figures that many people would consider to be populist within our mainstream political parties. Right? So within the Republican Party, Donald Trump, and at least some people would argue that Bernie Sanders within the Democratic Party also represents a type of populist leadership. Right? Clearly both of, them, both of them ran for office and campaigned against the party establishment or against the traditions of those political parties. What makes this different is because in most parts of the world, populist figures emerge outside the established party system. Right? So they, they typically run as independent outsiders against the establishment. So think Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, uh, Rafael Correa uh, in, in Ecuador would be another example. Right? So either they run as independent outsiders or in the sort of the West European tradition, they, they form a new political party that is sort of on the margins of the party system, in particular some of the new parties, parties of the right um, in Western Europe. Right? But it's very unusual in broader comparative terms to see populist leadership emerging within the traditional, the traditional political parties as we've seen in the United States, both Republican and Democratic. 
Now, I think in some ways, this has been conditioned by American democratic institutions. Right, a couple of things that are distinctive about our institutions that seem to make us prone to this kind of phenomenon. Right, one is simply presidentialism itself. Right? And a lot of people have argued that presidential systems are more prone to populism than parliamentary systems because in a parliamentary system, you can only become the head of state by working through a political party. So there's always sort of a deeper, a deeper set of political institutions that undergird leadership. Whereas in a presidential system, some sort of dominant personality can appeal for support, whether you're doing it as an independent or you're doing it through a political party. Right? But presidentialism seems to be prone to personalistic kinds of authority because a president has a direct, you have a direct electoral mandate as a leader in a presidential system, which you do not have as a prime minister. Right? A prime minister, you, citizens don't vote for a prime minister. You vote for a party and the party that has a majority in the parliament gets to select the prime minister. Right? But a president has a direct personal mandate. And so presidentialism seems to be prone to this in some ways. But it's not just presidentialism. Our presidentialism is combined with plurality elections, winner-take-all elections. Right? And those kinds of electoral systems make it hard to form new parties on the outside. So you know, the, the logic in Western Europe you know, where you have proportional representation a far-right populist party may start with 3% or 5% or 10% of the vote, but you can get representation in, in the parliament with that. And so you, rather than operating within the mainstream political party, you create a new party on the outside, on the margins of the system, and then you try to, to work your way in. Right? But our plurality elections make it difficult to form third or fourth and fifth political parties, and so there's a tendency then for the two-party system to absorb these outsider challenges. In other words, outsiders, rather than emerging as new political parties, they tend to work within the traditional mainstream political parties. And then finally, and I think very importantly, primary elections themselves. Right? Primary elections for the leadership of parties, uh, you know, ultimately this means that the party establishment, there's a loosening of the control of the party establishment over rank and file voters. And ultimately the primary system gives outsiders access leadership positions. And so you saw this very clearly uh, in the Republican Party with Trump, and you saw it as well with, with, Chandler, with Sanders and the Democratic Party, who almost defeated Hillary Clinton, who was clearly the candidate of the party establishment. Right, so primary systems allow populist challengers uh, to, to challenge the, par the party leadership um, in ways that our literature in American politics did not really anticipate this. Um, and so in many respects, this is sort of an emerging phenomenon that has, um, you know, that has really changed the nature of the political parties in the US. I mean, ultimately, we have to keep in mind, in a, in a parliamentary system, you, you, you would not get Trump emerging within a mainstream political party, right? The, the party leadership uh, that would select a prime minister would never have selected, the Republicans would not have selected Donald Trump. All right, it's only because you had the primary elections and you, you'd allow, you allowed, the Tea Party movement currents and these other populist currents at the grassroots of the Republican Party uh, that ultimately fed Trump's candidacy, right? So at the end of the day, Trump you know, was clearly not the candidate of the Republican establishment. And in many respects, this was, you know, the party has been transformed into the personal vehicle of Trump uh, through the primary system, right? So a number of things then about US democratic institutions which I think have, have made the U.S. susceptible to sort of the emergence of these kinds of populist figures within the mainstream parties. A third key area then in which I think 
populism as it's emerged in the United States has been somewhat different from other parts of the world. Populism in the, United, in the United States has surged in recent times in a context of partisan and ideological polarization, right? We hear a lot of discussion in American politics in recent, you know, in recent years about this polarization of American politics. What causes it? What are its effects on, on the democratic institutions, et cetera? But it's important to note this is quite unusual, again, in comparative terms, right? In most in most parts of the world, populism itself is polarizing, but it, populism does not feed off polarized politics for the most part. In fact, populism tends to emerge where the traditional political parties have converged, not where they polarize, but where they've come together and where they no longer offer voters meaningful alternatives. And so, for example, the region I work on in Latin America, in the, in the aftermath of the, the financial crisis in the 1980s and 1990s and then the free market reforms, when all the mainstream political parties converged around some version of neoliberalism in Latin America, that was the context that provoked the populist backlash. Right? In, in particular, where, where there's traditional parties of the center left, where they were the ones leading the free market reforms. You see the similar dynamic in Southern Europe. Right? Where the parties of the center left are in power in context of financial crises, having to implement very conservative free market policies, Essentially, the traditional differences between the left and the right have collapsed. And in that context, it becomes much easier for a populist to say, these guys are all the same, right? There's no difference between those traditional parties. Vote for me, I'm the alternative. We, we're going to offer you something new, something that is different. Right? So typically, populism does not emerge in polarized contexts. It tends to emerge in contexts where you've got some sort of consensus or convergence of the traditional parties. That's so what populism does. It typically politicizes issue positions or issue dimensions that the mainstream parties have ignored or you know, issue dimensions along which the mainstream political parties no longer clearly differentiate themselves. That's so populism, as I said, it, it is itself polarizing, but it tends to thrive in contexts of depoliticization and alienation, not polarization. Now, just in terms of trying to understand the, the nature of this polarization, let me say a, a little bit more about it. I think it's important for us to think of polarization in two-dimensional space. And this is something we don't necessarily, we're not accustomed to doing this. Even our political language, we talk about the left and the right, right? The left and the right exists along one spectrum, right? You've got, you know, you've got one spectrum and you've got a left pole and a right pole. It's unidimensional. And that's typically how we think of it in the United States. You know, when, you know, when the Republicans talk about a conservative movement, what they're telling you is that there is, you know, that there's a spectrum in left to the right, and the conservative movement includes X, Y, and Z, right? Several different issue positions, but they see those as being naturally brought together. But I think in particular in comparative politics, the European scholars talk much more about two-dimensional spaces of political competition. Uh, and ultimately, this, I think this helps us to understand some of the differences between left and right-wing forms of populism. Right? Where the populisms of the left and the right agree, they agree that the people have been abandoned or betrayed by the political establishment. Right? When in Spain, and you know, they call the, the casta politica, the political caste, right? this leadership where they say all the traditional parties are part of that political caste. Right? So the left and the right populisms agree on that. Where they differ is in their conceptualizations of who are the people. And they politicize, they politicize then different 
different axes of competition, right? So that they're really orthogonal, I'll show this in just a moment, orthogonal axes of political competition. So there's the traditional left-right economic axis. So you have statist and redistributive policies on one end of the pole and free market policies on the other end of the pole, right? So the, where left-wing populists tend to emerge, they tend to politicize that economic axis. Many of the, what we call right-wing populists though, they often, they, for the most part, they don't politicize that same economic axis. What they're politicizing is more cultural axis of competition. Right, so this is an axis that is formed by what you might call liberal cosmopolitan or multicultural values on one side of the pole, and then different kinds of particularisms at the other end of the pole, which is where populism is. Right? So it may be ethno-nationalist type of particularisms, it may be religious particularisms, but something, something that defines we the people in more nativistic terms, right? That we're the, this is the heartland, the people that are most authentically part of this particular community, and pop, right populism tends to appeal to those kinds of identities. So just to give you an, an example of this, so here's the two-dimensional space, right? The traditional left-right axis of the economic, uh, the economic um, axis. Uh, so on the left side would be the statist or redistributive policies, on the right side more pro-market kinds policies. Um, the populisms of the left, I put up here, you know, Hugo Chavez, uh, Cyprus, or the, you know, the uh, Syriza party in Greece, Podemos in Spain, Evo Morales, Bernie Sanders you might put there. Typically the left populisms are politicizing the left side on the economic axis. But the right pop, this is where the language gets a little confusing. We call it right populism, but in fact they're not necessarily on the right side of that on the economic axis. The Tea Party was and push the Republican Party in that direction. But Donald, when Donald Trump is, is, is supporting trade protectionism and trade wars, is, there's nothing right-wing right, right wing about that. I mean, that is highly antithetical to the market orthodoxy of the traditional Republican Party. And this is part of why the party establishment had trouble with Trump. Donald Trump is not a traditional Republican, and he does not adhere to some of the core ideological precepts of the Republican Party. Right? So in essence, in, in, when Trump and increasingly, some of the other what we call right-wing populists in, in Europe, that some of those parties began more like the Tea Party on sort of the, the pro-market side, but they moved over time into this space by supporting trade protectionism, in some cases by defending traditional welfare states in Europe, but doing so by trying to say, we want to, you know, we want to protect the welfare state for we the people, the ones who really belong, it's the outsiders that we want to exclude. Right? So it's what they call welfare chauvinism. Right? So it's the, this notion of trying to exclude the immigrants and try to insulate your society from the pressures of the European institutions. Right? But ultimately, for the most part, you see the populists on the right, they're really politicizing much more the cultural axis rather than the economic axis. And they locate themselves on the lower end of this pole. Right, so ultimately, they're, you know, they're defending the, the national identities, in some cases, national identities closely tied to certain ethnic or racial connotations of, of who are we the people, uh, trying to exclude immigrants and outsiders. Right? But a series of uh, sometimes strong religious uh, components are part of, of that particular particularism. Right, but this is ultimately the, a very different axis of competition. And as I said, the terminology of the left and the right gets confusing here because what we call far-right populism does not necessarily locate itself 
on the far right on the economic axis. In fact, Le Pen, Le Pen and, and the National Front in France have probably moved left of center um, on some of their economic platforms. Right, so that's why they, that sphere is sort of cutting across the boundary there. All right, so these would be the, the two-dimensional space. And I think when we think of, when we think of, uh, of populisms of the left and the right, it's important to keep those, those two different dimensions um, in mind uh, because it, it shapes how we think about you know, different, kinds of, different kinds of populism. I also want to say I think there's sort of an underlying what you might call a populist paradox in terms of the kinds, the kinds of political economies where you see these different expressions of populism on the left and the right. I would argue that left populism has been most common, places like Latin America and Southern Europe, right, places where you have severe economic inequalities, and in particular what we often call dualistic labor markets. That means where you have some people that are employed in the formal sector of the economy, and there are certain protections that come with that. You have access to the welfare state uh, mechanisms that, that may be in place, but you have other people, <coughs> other workers who are, if not unemployed, they may be employed on temporary contracts or the, in the informal sector of the economy that is unregulated, very few protections. Um, and many of those kinds of workers are excluded from welfare state forms of support uh, that are dependent upon your, your employment status. Right? So there are forms um, in Latin America and Southern Europe, um, traditional forms of support for unemployment insurance or health care may be tied to your employment status. And so if you're not in the formal sector of the economy, you're excluded from those welfare state kinds of protections and you basically defend, depend upon family resources. Those are societies where you tend to see populism emerging on the left. So we've seen left populism in recent times in Latin America and in Southern Europe. And it's basically a form of populism that emerges where the national community itself is deeply divided. And you have large sectors of the national community that have been excluded from, you know, from effective forms of representation and, and support within, within uh, the welfare state. Uh, and so populism then is trying to integrate a national community that is already deeply divided. I think that's very different from where you see right populism emerging. This gets a little bit muddled now. You see the rise of Bolsonaro in Brazil. So we're beginning to see some right populisms in Latin America too. Uh, but for the most part, right populism has been most pronounced in Northern and Central Europe, right? Where capitalism in some ways has been more inclusive, right? Lower inequalities, less dualistic labor markets, more inclusive and universal welfare states. And in those contexts, what you're seeing is right populism emerges less, less as a way of integrating the national community, more as a way of demarcating the national community from outsiders, right, from the immigrant populations. And so it's sort of a way of pulling inwards and trying to protect what you have against what are perceived to be the costs uh, of, of outsiders coming in, right? So it's a, different, it's a different economic or structural underpinnings for these different kinds of populisms. I don't think we can carry the explanation. I don't think this explanation is, is completely deterministic. I think we're beginning to see diffusion effects and demonstration effects of different kinds of populism in different places. And so I think you can get a lot of different populisms in different contexts. But in general, I think there has been this underlying paradox, uh, you know, that essentially where capitalism is more exclusionary, populism tends to be more inclusionary and vice versa. Where capitalism has been more inclusive, populism tends to be more exclusionary, trying to keep the outsiders away. In particular, politicizing immigration.
Now, in terms of the United States, in trying to understand, as I said, you know, populism has emerged in a context where we think of US politics as already being highly polarized. But it's important to note, for the most part, I think polarization in the US has been what you might call asymmetric, especially on the economic axis. Okay, on the economic axis, until, at least until the rise of Bernie Sanders, it, was, it wasn't a case where the Democrats were moving left and the Republicans were moving right. right? The Republican Party has clearly defined itself in very ideological terms on the right side of that poll. In comparative terms, I think the Republican Party is probably the most ideologically orthodox pro-market party that I can think of in, in the world, at least of any, main, of any large political party. I think it is the most ideological political party, conservative political party that, that we see in the world. All right? And so the, in terms of polarization, yes, I think you can argue the Republican Party moved further and further to the right pole. But the Democratic Party, we forget that the whole Clinton project, and in many ways even Barack Obama, you know, supported free trade, they supported financial deregulation. These are not, in comparative terms, the Democratic Party was not a party of the left on the economic axis. It was a centrist, even a center-right party on the economic axis. Right, so to the extent that there was polarization on the economic axis in the US, it was basically a function of the Republican Party moving towards the right pole. Right? There was, if anything, a programmatic convergence between the two parties on trade and financial deregulation, some divergence on taxes and social welfare. Right? But I think it's misleading to, to talk of polarization in the US on this economic axis. That has maybe changed now with the rise of Bernie Sanders, pulling the Democrats more to the left, and, and others, others behind Sanders, certainly. Right? Um, certainly, the Tea Party movement in the Republican Party politicized the right pole. It also politicized the lower pole, the cultural axis. Right? So the Tea Party movement was very polarizing in US politics, and it pushed the Republican Party even further on the right pole and lower on, on, that toward, on the, uh, the vertical pole. And certainly Trump, in many ways, I would argue that he prioritizes that cultural pull, uh, you know, for, because he's been quite unorthodox on the economic axis. Ultimately then, uh, in many respects, I think especially with the rise of the Tea Party movement, but even before the Tea Party movement, the Christian evangelical movement, anti-abortion anti movement, various social movements have worked their way into the Republican Party in ways that have really transformed the Republican Party. And I, I would argue that it is, the Republican Party is less and less sort of a mainstream conservative party and more and more a party that is similar to the National Front in France or other more ethno-nationalist kinds of parties with strong populist tendencies. And in many respects, the, the Republican Party has really become what we call a movement party or a movement-based party, right? A party where the, the infusion of these social movements into the party have really transformed it, especially where you have primary elections. And so that it's, it's those movement currents that are increasingly determining who speaks for the Republican Party. And Trump, in many ways, is the figure that pulls those currents together. In general, then, I would say that there's been more polarization in the US on the cultural axis than there has been on the economic axis. Okay, so when we talk about, when you talk about polarization in the United States, you could, you could make an argument that, you know, if you think in two-dimensional terms, you have four quadrants. And you can see the challenges that exist if you have four quadrants but only two political parties. Right? And if, there, if the Republican Party's center of gravity is in the lower right quadrant, but the Democratic center of gravity is in the upper left quadrant, 
right, what you see is that there are basically two vacant quadrants, right? So the top right, the top right, think Wall Street, think Silicon Valley, right? In, in citizens who are, who are socially liberal, all right, but on the economic axis, pro-market, right? So who, when, who do they, you know, which party do they support, right? On the economic axis, they may be closer to the Republicans. On the cultural axis, they're probably closer to the Democrats, right? But they don't necessarily have a natural party home. Same thing for, for this quadrant, think trade union, blue-collar unionists in the heartland, right? And ultimately, you know, again, on the economic axis, probably closer to the Democrats. On the cultural axis, maybe closer to the Republican Party. Right, so those are the quadrants where the two parties compete. Right? So if you see the arrows indicating there's no natural, and what essentially what Trump did very effectively was to try to compete for the space. Uh, and as the Democratic Party moved up on the cultural axis, and at least before Sanders moved, moved to the right on the economic axis, it vacated a lot of space down here. So these are the blue collar workers that, that Trump was going at. Um, and you know, in some ways what Hillary was calculating was that she could pick up support, you know, from, you know, from Wall Street, from, uh, from Silicon Valley, from more libertarian type, type elements in the upper right quadrant. And at the end of the day, we, we know how it came out, right? But this gives you a sense of sort of the strategic challenges that parties face when you've got in two-dimensional space with four quadrants, but only two political parties trying to occupy that space and how they have to compete for different kinds of constituencies. So just to, to try to wrap this up, let me try to talk a little bit more about the implications of all of this for democracy and, and where it leaves us for thinking about democratic politics in, in the United States. Right, first of all, it's sort of a debate we've been having for many years around populism. Is, is populism, is it a two-edged sword for democracy? In other words, you can find arguments that populism provides a corrective to failures of representation and also arguments that populism is, is intrinsically a threat to democracy. Right, so how is it that, how would we think of populism as a potential corrective? Right, clearly what populism tries to do is offer a voice to excluded sectors, right? Some sort of representation to sectors of society who were marginalized or excluded or alienated before. Right, so populism is, is very good at bringing people back into politics who maybe were left aside or didn't feel represented. In that sense, there's something intrinsically democratizing about populist appeals. The challenge is that populism has a tendency, in practice, populism tends to concentrate power in ways that threaten the separation of powers, the independent checks and balances, and minority political rights. That's right, so ultimately then, I would argue, Populism dem demonstrates what I think is an inherent tension between two core democratic principles, right? Two things that are absolutely intrinsic to what we think of as democracy, but they're in tension with each other. And populism, populism really manifests that tendency in, in, in very open ways, right? So these two core democratic principles, one is what I would call popular sovereignty, right? The notion of majority rule, power to the people, right? Empowering popular constituencies, right? Popular sovereignty, one core principle. The other one is what I call institutionalized pluralism, right? The notion that the democracy is basically a way of creating rules of the game to allow different interests in society to coexist and to compete, but to compete within ways uh, that avoid violence and, you know, and recognize the interests of others, right? So institutionalized pluralism basically is getting at the rights of political minorities, 
and the, the presence of institutional checks and balances to avoid some sort of concentration of power that can become abusive. Right, the challenge here then, if, if, po if populism empowers the people, what rights, if any, are possessed by those sectors of society who may not belong to the people, who may not be included in that populist coalition? Right, if one side is the people, who is the other side? The anti-people? What rights do the anti-people have in the democratic arena? Right, so this is sort of the, the tension that exists in constructing that populist binary that I, that I talked about before. Is, you know, if, if one side is the people, what kinds of rights exist on the other side? This, in some ways, gets at, some of you may remember this, Robert Dahl's classic book on polyarchy where he, he talked about, some of the terms don't quite fit with what I'm talking, but essentially, Dahl's getting at these two core principles, right? This one, what he calls inclusiveness or participation, this is basically the axis of popular sovereignty, right? Empowering the people, uh, invoking popular sovereignty. This is the axis where populism lies. And this is the axis that I call institutionalized pluralism. Right? It's what Dahl calls liberalization or contestation, the notion that there are a plurality of actors who have the right to participate, and there needs to be some sort of institutionalized checks and balances to make sure that no one actor dominates against the others. Right? So Dahl's notion of polyarchy basically includes those core principles and ultimately what populism does is show you how those two principles can be in tension with each other. In terms of the United States then, right, the U.S. democratic system was ingeniously designed to fragment power, deliberately so. The founding fathers did not, you know, they didn't trust power. They didn't trust the people either. And they wanted to fray, they wanted to make, they wanted to guard against any sort of concentration of powers in any particular hands, right? So they set up the, the separation, executive, legislative, judicial branches with elaborate institutional checks and balances to guard against the concentration or abuse of power. Historically, certainly in the post-war period in the United States, this was buttressed by what we call centripetal patterns of political competition. In other words, two moderate, what we call catch-all political parties that basically overlapped in the center of the spectrum and competed for support from what we call the median voter, right? Sort of the, the dead center of the political space. We forget that until the 1960s, the Republican Party was more liberal on civil rights than the Democratic Party. Right? It's a civil rights movement and desegregation that sort of split things apart and then realign the parties themselves. So the Republicans, Republicans and Democrats traditionally overlap ideologically in the center. Um, and you know, so there was not this strong polarization that you see between the political parties, right? But this earlier form, of these overlapping competition, it helped to construct bipartisan legislative uh, coalitions. And it also allowed for other key institutions to be independent and nonpartisan. Right, so there's a whole array of institutions that we traditionally think of as not being partisan institutions in the United States. The courts, not just the Supreme Court, but the federal courts, uh, congressional investigative commissions, the FBI, the Federal Reserve Board, the electoral institutions themselves. We don't think of those as being partisan institutions in the United States. But I would argue these are precisely the kinds of institutions that are being politicized by this hyperpolarization that we see in American politics in recent times. What polarization does 
you, it, polarization is when it exists in both ideological and partisan terms, right? So some of this is ideological, you know, with the parties, you know, supporting policy platforms that are increasingly divergent and very sharply in conflict with each other. But there are also partisan animosities, sort of a teamsmanship uh, that exists, sort of strong identities with the party. And actually what we're finding in some of the survey work is not so much that people identify so strongly as Republicans or Democrats. What's even stronger is, they, is how much they dislike the other guys. So you may not be a real strong Republican, but you're a really strong anti-Democrat or vice versa. All right, so it's actually negative partisanship stronger than positive partisan identities in contemporary American politics. But it's very real, right? very sharp polarization that exists. Right? What polarization does, it raises the stakes of partisan competition. And it encourages, in other words, if, if you really dislike the other guys or you really fear the kinds of policies they would implement if they came in, it raises the stakes of democratic competition. Right? Who wins and takes office matters a lot in context of hyper-polarization. Hyper, uh, and it encourages each side to see the other as some sort of existential threat to their core interests. Right? It's not just that it's not like losing a football game, you know, that's you know, the other team wins and you've lost to the other team, but there are real interests at stake. And you you really fear that the other side could threaten however it is that you define your core interests. Right, so polarization raises the stakes of competition. It also then encourages the parties to use different institutional levers, right? the courts, the electoral system, congressional investigative commissions, the FBI, to use each of those not as checks and balances, but rather to use them as partisan weapons, right? as instruments that can help advantage your party or exclude, you know, exclude your rivals from gaining access to power. Right? And a lot of fear that if the other side gains control of any of these levers, that they will use those to tilt the playing field of the democratic system. Ultimately, then, what you're seeing, I think, is a lot of repurposing of institutions, right? Institutions that are designed to function as checks and balances don't necessarily function in that way because they've become institutionalized and they've been turned into partisan weapons to try to concentrate power or exclude opponents. So just to try to, to wrap up and, and conclude then, it's interesting for me to go back and, and look at sort of the original democratic theories around the separation of powers and checks and balances. You go back to the writings of Montesquieu and, and Madison. It's important to keep in mind they, they were writing in the era of kings and queens when they thought if you just created these separate institutions that you would be distributing power in certain ways. They wrote before the rise of modern political parties. And Madison, I should point out, was quite, uh, quite hostile to the notion of political parties, precisely for the, because of this reason. Right? He saw parties as, as a threat uh, to the fragmentation of power that he thought was important. And for Madison, what was really important was there were so many, there was such a plurality of interests within society, he didn't think that anything would be able to pull it all together in ways that would concentrate power in threatening ways. But he wrote before the rise of mass political parties, and I would argue that there's nothing in our institutional design. There's a lot of confidence in checks and balances in the US, but I would argue there is nothing in the institutional design that guarantees that parties will enforce the checks and balances rather than weaponize those institutions for their own advantage. This is, if, if any of you have looked at Hungary, of all the comparative cases, I think Hungary is the most fascinating 
where urban's power took party took power in a context with the uh, sort of a temp an economic crisis that dramatically weakened the other parties, and urban was able to, to use a temporary legislative majority to use you know to gain control over other institutional levers and then to whittle away at the checks and the balances to change the rules of the game where you needed to, but to simply repurpose the existing institutions. And he basically you know, moved from democracy to a competitive authoritarian system without breaking the laws. Right? There's no military coup, there's no revolution, didn't even break the laws, didn't fill up the prisons with a lot of political opponents. Right? It's not that kind of highly repressive authoritarianism, but it's a form of authoritarianism that has fundamentally tilted the playing field in ways that make it really no longer a democratic regime. So that's the kind of thing that that a lot of this are, are fearing. Ultimately then, uh, you know, the democratic norms that, that safeguard these institutional checks and balances, I think, have, have eroded in contemporary U.S. politics. And I would argue, just to conclude, I think, I think we're put, there's too much attention that is given to Trump. And that's understandable. He's a colorful guy. He has an ingenious ability to become the focal point of all discussion and debate. But I think, I would argue that Trump is a, much more a symptom rather than a cause of these problems. Um, and I think that these problems will long outlive the Trump administration itself. Uh, so I think I, I've been talking too long. Maybe I should stop there um, and hopefully I'll provoke some questions or comments. We'd be very happy to take them. So, thank you. Yeah. You want me to just take questions? Yeah. Sure. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Um, thank you for your talk. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm, I'm wondering about populism and the way that it can erode democratic practices and what we mean by the erosion of democratic practices. And so the two things that I saw you pointing out was something about the erosion of minority rights and civil liberties, and also something about the changing of the playing field and making it less even to favor one sort of oligarchical. And I'm wondering about sort of the, like what we mean by the playing field and what it's yeah. supposed to be even for. Is it supposed to be even for individual voters? Is it supposed to be for interests that can be discoursed? Or is it just an even playing field for parties? It's, you know, the idea, I mean, certainly an even playing field would mean that, that every vote would count and count equally and that, that, you know, that citizens have equal opportunities to vote. So things like voter suppression for example, in the United States, would be a clear effort to tilt the playing field. And I, I think there have been you know, efforts to suppress the vote in the United States on partisan grounds, something that is quite unusual in broader comparative terms. Um, you know, in, it's hard to think of other democratic systems where you see one of the major parties having, basically having a strategy to try to suppress the vote on class and racial and ethnic grounds. Um, and that would be an example of tilting the playing field um, to make it harder for potential supporters of your rivals to turn out and vote. So that would be an example of it. Um, things like district gerrymandering can clearly take on, you know, can, can be a way of distorting uh, the playing field in ways that clearly advantage one party over another. Um, so those would be examples from, from the U.S. context. In other, in other contexts, you know, you see a lot of ingenious ways in which 
you know, the, the Urbans and the Chavez's and others can tilt the playing field um, in ways that make it difficult for your rivals, you know, to, to really organize a strong electoral challenge um, and, uh, you know, to sort of kneecap them if they do come, come to office. Um, and so ultimately these are some of the things that, you know, that I think we have to keep an eye on. But that, the notion of the playing field is mostly has to do with whether or not the different parties, you know, if, if, you know, I mean, pretty much all democratic elections have some sort of competition between political parties. Right? But it basically means, is there a playing field so that you don't have institutional roadblocks that prevent, you know, some, some set of parties from effectively challenging whoever may be in power. Right? So the notion, you know, the, you know the notion of democracy is predicated on this assumption of what we call contingent consent. Right? The parties agree that if if, if, you, if they lose an election, that the winners can take office, but the winners can't then use their power to change the rules of the game in ways that make it more difficult for the challengers to come back. Right? So the whole understanding of democratic competition is predicated on the assumption that if you lose the election this time, that's okay because you still get to come back and compete the next time. And, but if the one who wins the election in the short term uses that advantage to kneecap the opponents, then you're no longer in a democratic regime. And so that's what, you know, Levitsky and, and, and Way and others who talk about competitive authoritarianism, that's basically what they're talking about, is the way in which strongman rulers will use temporary advantages to tilt the playing field to their advantage and against the interests of their opponents. I'm wondering on your uh, sort of European axis of uh, the two-dimensional uh -huh. political space, I'm wondering where parties that advertise themselves as left or left populist, uh, like Cinque Stelle in Italy or uh, Die Linke in Germany, where they're uh, well, less guardedly in Italy, more guardedly in Germany, where their sort of rhetoric of the national community or in, in Italy, really more xenophobic anti-immigrant rhetoric on the left uh, fits into that scheme. Does it just move them down toward the ethnocultural end, or is it a qualitatively different sort of blend? Yeah. Yeah, this this is an interesting question. Let me let me see if I can go back to that. See, that's the US should be right there. Yeah, um, I mean I think that you know, I think the parties that, that fit down here, you know, are pretty clear. You know, Urban uh, with Fidesz in Hungary, Le Pen in the National Front in France. Um, you know, Trump, I think, belongs in, in that particular space. Now, it's, it's the left populace, and the, you know, I should point out, you know, there's some debate as to whether or not that's the right way for us to think of them. But I, you know, for example, Podemos in Spain is an interesting case because they, they clearly politicize the left the left axis on the economic pole, but they also define themselves in pretty pluralistic terms. You know, in, in multinational Spain, you know, they're the party that is, you know, that is most open to, you know, to, to Catalonia and the Basque interests, and they're challenging, you know, more the more conservative understanding of Spanish national identity, and, you know, in a, in a context where there's a lot of politicization of those those different subnational identities and. And Podemos, as sort of a left populist type of political party, you know, I would argue is, is fairly high on the cultural pole rather than lower. 
Now, the Italian case is really complicated because you've got, you've got the, the Northern League, uh, which, of course, began as a, as a regional splinter. I mean, they were very much on the low pole, actually more pro-market, more pro uh, at least initially. Um, you know, but they basically represented the wealthy, the more wealthy northern part of Italy looking down on the southern part of Italy and, and even saying, we, wanna, we don't even want to be associated with those guys. We want to, you know, initially they were sort of a, a breakaway kind of movement. Now they've dropped northern from their name explicitly so that they can appeal nationally. So now they're saying, we represent Italy, the nation, against those outsiders, the immigrants, a very strong anti-immigrant kind of platform. So it's interesting how their name change tries to, you know, to evoke the new national identity and sort of the new way in which they're framing who is we the people. We the people is now no longer the northern wealthy Italians, it's now we the Italians against those immigrants and outsiders trying to come in. The Five Star is complicated because they weren't exactly a left populism like Podemos or Syriza, but there were leftist currents. But five, I've all, in some of my work I've called Five Star sort of the classic populist case that you can't put, you, you can't, in fact, I would argue, let me step back for a moment. I'm, I'm always very cautious of labeling anything, just calling it populist. Because I think, what, you know, because of the fact you have such radically different kinds of populists, I think it's a very important that we use some sort of identifying adjective. So we talk about left populism or ethno-nationalist or right-wing populism. That's something that helps us locate these other elements so that we know more about the kind of populism it is. So very rarely would I simply want to call something populist. An exception is the Five Star in Italy, because I don't know what else I would attach to it. I think, it is, I think the Five Star is pure populism that basically defines itself as against the establishment. And it has, you know, it's programmatic stance. You know, it's, it's nothing terribly radical. You know, it's, you know they, they support small business. They support a universal basic income. They support environmental stuff. So there's a little bit of left, a little bit of, you know, cautious conservatism. Um, so I would not myself call the five-star a left populism, and I would say it's one of the very few cases, maybe Argentine Peronism is the other one, just populist. Right? You, you can't call Peronism left populism or right Peronism, because Peronism historically literally spanned the entire ideological spectrum, from the fascist right to the Marxist left, all within Peronism. Uh, and five-star is not quite that extreme. But Five Star, I think you can't really attach other kinds of labels. My, my understanding, you may know better than my understanding, is that they have increasingly moved a bit towards a stronger national identity with some wariness towards, towards immigration and things. And so to that extent, they would be, they would, I, I would certainly put them lower on this axis than uh, Podemos in Spain, which I think is quite, quite cosmopolitan and universalist. Uh, I think the Five Star perhaps less so. And of course, the Five Star now is in alliance with the League, which is very low on the cultural axis. I should point out one other point on this. The one, thing, one, of, the, one of the real survivors within the Trump administration, we hardly ever hear about him, and he's one of the few guys who's been there from the very beginning, but I think he's one of the, mo one of the most influential figures for shaping policy, it's Steve Miller, um, who sort of comes out of this right populist element. He's given one press conference that I'm aware of in his time in the, in the Trump administration, and it was fascinating because he attacked the media for representing what he called cosmopolitan values. And so he actually labeled this axis beautifully, 
you know, the, you know, saying that, you know, what Trump represents is we the people, and it's these cosmo this cosmopolitan other pole uh, that we're arrayed against. Uh, but he's been a survivor in part because he keeps a very low profile. I'm not sure why they had him give this one press conference, but it was a very revealing press conference. He understands that axis quite clearly. Um, so it's an interesting case. Yes, others. Yeah. Uh, it strikes me what you're saying is that in the case of uh, the story of democracy in America, anyway, the villain of the piece is not so much populism as it is polarization unlike other kinds of uh, uh, populism. American populism doesn't cause polarization. It's a consequence of polarization. Polarization is re uh, repurposing our institutions to subvert the democratic uh, competition and so forth. Yeah. Fair enough. So then the question is, what's causing polarization in America? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, this is, it's complicated because I mean, I think, I think a couple of things are working together to cause this polarization. And I would, I would highly recommend um, a book by Doug McAdam and a, and a co-author a couple years ago. Uh, came out in 2014, I think from Cambridge. Um, God, what was the name of McAdam's book? Deeply Divided. It's a book called Deeply Divided. And McAdam is a sociologist who works on social movements. It, it's interesting. The political scientists give very little attention this kind of work, and it's unfortunate, because I think he puts his finger on a lot of it. He doesn't quite say it, but essentially what he's getting at is a combination of mobilization at the grassroots um, it, with the institutional design, in particular primaries, all right? Yeah, but what's happened is that there's been a series of social movements that have been infused into the Republican Party in ways that have pushed the party further to the right, including the evangelical Christian movement and the anti-abortion movement, the anti-gay rights, I don't know if that's really a movement, but certainly there are elements there, but then certainly the Tea Party movement, which in some ways brought some of those things together. But in McAdam's account, McAdam goes back really to the 1960s, and he argues that it's in, in some ways this polarization is the backlash against desegregation in the United States, and I would argue, you might, he doesn't quite put it in these terms, but you could say, as a backlash against the democratization of the South. It's important to keep in mind, we think of the United States as having a democratic regime for 200 and whatever number of years it is. The South of the United States, under any comparative understanding of democracy, the Southern United States was not democratic until desegregation and the Civil Rights Act in 1965, right? If, if, you, if you disenfranchise on racial grounds a large block of voters, you cannot under any mean you cannot call yourself a democratic regime. What the Civil Rights Act did was it democratized the South. Right? So we, we had what, what we call subnational authoritarianism in the South until the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act and the Civil Rights Movement you know, put desegregation onto the agenda. Uh, and what it did is it fundamentally realigned the political party system. Um, and so the Southern conservatives and the Democratic Party gradually moved into the Republican Party and so in the civil rights movement, and then the series, McAdam talks about the series of other social movements that follow in its wake, the student movement, the anti-war movement, the gay rights movement, the environmental movement. Those movements in some ways worked their way towards the Democratic Party and shaped the Democratic Party, while the backlash against them worked their way into the Republican Party. 
Um, and I would argue that the Republican Party became more of a movement party more clearly than I think the Democratic Party, although I think in recent times you see increasingly the, the movements infusing the Democratic Party on the left side. And some of what I think, I think we are now seeing a, a true polarization with both parties moving towards the polls. Um, but I think that the Republican Party was very much transformed by these very counter, counter movements against the social movements on the left that worked their way into the Republican Party, and particularly, initially, the evangelical movement, uh, evangelical Christian movement, um, but then the other, you know, in more recent times, the Tea Party and others. And so I think in some ways, the Republican Party has become, it's complicated because it's, in some ways it's a movement party, but it's a, a movement party that has these very strong populist currents that, that are part of that, um, that, you know, that all sort of appeal to a certain kind of either ethno-national or religious particularism on that lower pole. And so the movements themselves have a populist coloring um, that is important. I mean, some of, you know, we have a friend, Kirk Hawkins, that has a team of people that are trying to find ways to, to measure populist discourse in, in leaders and parties. And what, what he's finding, for example, is that, is that the most populist figure in, in American politics is not Trump or Sanders, it's Ted Cruz, most consistently using a populist language, representing that more ideological wing of the Republican Party, right? So even that wing of the party, and, and you know, Ted Cruz is very anti-establishment, and was in, in very much disliked by the party establishment until they became the last best alternative to Trump. It was extraordinary to see the Republican, the Republican mainstream gravitating to support Ted Cruz in the primary elections as the only alternative to Trump, because they couldn't stand Ted um, and so this is part of the transformation of the party that is taking place, and it's complicated because there's a movement side of the story, there's a populist side of the story, and then the way in which, especially the primary system, the institutions make it possible for these new movement cur currents to basically transform the party from within. So this is the practice. Yeah, very different question, and I wanted to pick up on, I think, your last point about you know, the overemphasis on Trump and so forth. And I get, I'm sure you're aware of this, but over the last decade or so, you know, kind of an emerging theory of populism focuses on uh, language, style of dress, choice of words, and so forth. And uh, I'm wondering, A, what you think of that, uh, how, and B, how it, how it kind of fit, a, what you think of that as a theory or an emphasis, and B, how it fits in your own narrative. Because I'm, I'm thinking of people like Evo Morales, who yeah. has, a, has a completely different, in Bolivia, has a differently, diff, completely different kind of embodied cultural capital, or right. form of cultural capital than others. And I'm, and I'm also thinking of my Facebook feed and my colleagues who simply criticize Trump on the grounds of his hair, skin tone, or whatever, <laughs> rather than his debating his economic nationalism or whatever. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, this is a, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. And, um, you know, I mean, populism is, is obviously appealing to the people. Um, and, you know, and, and, trying to convince the people that there's some sort of elite out there that is against their interests. Um, 
Now, if you're Evo Morales and you started your political career, you know, Evo started, he was the, uh, he organized the soccer club for his, uh, for his, uh, the Cocaleros, uh, basically a peasant union, all right? So he literally started as a, as a union organizer and then worked his way up. You know, so the, the, he couldn't be any more authentic. You know, he was indigenous, he was a union organizer, you know, less, you know, lower level of education. There's nothing elite at all about Evo Morales. And so there's a certain authenticity that comes with that. So the, you know, the paradox, I mean, how does Donald Trump as a billionaire, you know, how can he really be a populist? And in part, you know, part of the critique, those who are saying that Trump is not a real populist, it has to do with that, you know, that he's a billionaire and he lives in Mar-a-Lago or whatever that's called and, you know, surrounded by all this glitter and, and glitz. Um, and, you know, that, you know, he doesn't, you know, that he's not, he's clearly not really of the people. Um, but this is where Trump's an interesting figure, I think, because and, and a lot of what people like myself would say, you know, things we find offensive in some of his discourse, the things he says about Mexicans or, you know, about women, you know, I mean, a lot of things that, that are seen as being, um, you know, highly offensive and certainly very politically incorrect. Um, but in some ways, that his, his very willingness to defy political correctness and to defy the rules of the game and the existing democratic norms and decorum, that which is proper, the proper way to behave in politics. I mean, Trump sort of flaunts his improperness. Uh, I mean, my favorite scholar in all of this is, is Pierre Ostegui, who talks about the flaunting of the low. Right? The cult, and when he's talking about the flaunting of the low, he's talking about this, this cultural axis, uh, that the high axis is an elite Access people that travel, cosmopolitan. You can there, you know. There's this transnational elite that feels comfortable whether you're in San Francisco or Paris or you know wherever you might be. Um, and the populist low is something quite different. The, the, the populist low is always you know we the people from here, the heartland. Um, and ultimately, Trump's you know his very defiance of the norms of, of proper political etiquette is I think part of what authenticates him. You know, with those sectors of society that are really alienated, that feel left behind, that don't like people from elite universities, the, you know, the coastal elites. I mean, there's a real geographic, a cultural cleavage in American society. I mean, there's, you know, the, the distinction between, you know, the, the coastal northeast and the coastal northwest and much of what is thought of as the heartland of the United States. You can identify, you know, there are urban centers in the heartland that are different. You can literally, if you see the map of who voted for Trump by county nationwide, it's extraordinary because it's basically, you know, you, you know the Hillary voters, the coastal northeast, the coastal northwest, and then you can pick out the college towns and a few large metropolitan areas. And otherwise, the entire heartland went Trump. Um, but I think that there are a lot of sectors in American society that feel that they've been left behind and that they aren't, you know, they, that their values are not those of this coastal elite. Um, and in some ways, you know, Trump's crudeness is a way of appealing to those who are really unhappy with the status quo. And I think it's, it's part of the way in which he authenticates himself as a populist figure uh, to these other sectors in American society. I was um, wanting to go back to the Republican Party as a movement party. Um, um, and I feel like um, if I'm hearing you right, you're suggesting that the, that the movements latched onto the party and infiltrated the party. But my understanding 
so I'm thinking specifically of the abortion movement, um, the anti-abortion movement. Um, and so, so I don't, I don't see. I guess I'm seeing it. Maybe it's a small point, but I'm seeing it as they they glommed on to that as a strategy and as a tactic. Um, well, as a tactic to a larger strategy. I think. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, keep in mind Nixon gave it a name. You know, the Southern strategy. Right. Um, yeah. So yes, I've, there's certainly an element of of the party trying to identify ways to appeal, um, you know, to these constituencies. And uh, so, so, I mean, in, in essence, I would argue that it's, it's not really, I don't think it's, it has to be an either-or. I mean, I think yeah. there, there's a genuine dynamic from below, right, a grassroots mobilization from below, which did not, you know, the evangelical Christian movement did not identify as Republican until really the late 1970s it as was the alliance was formed. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, that's, you know, that evangelical you know, movement was in some ways a backlash against desegregation in the schooling system, and a you know it's a complicated story. But but ultimately, yes, certainly there were republic you know leaders of the Republican Party who saw the, this as an opportunity to try to you know to you what we call wedge issues, but exactly. sort of driving a cleavage. Yes. Um, and so there's definitely a, a top down dynamic. There's also obviously a lot of private money. You know the you know we all know that. Sort of the story that the Tea Party movement was not just grassroots; there was also a top-down element to it. So a lot of financial support uh, from libertarian, you know, very well-endowed libertarian, uh, you know, think tanks and, and organizations that are, you know, that are behind this. So ultimately, there's no, it's it's not a, a simple unidimensional kind of phenomenon. There's sort of a combination of party strategy from above and grassroots mobilization from below, and then private sector. Um, you know, donor support that all sort of fed together in, in remaking the party. But I think, in, I would argue that the, the Republican Party sort of nurtured these populist currents for a long period of time, but kept them, in a sense, contained by making sure that there was a mainstream leadership that really, you know, defined where the party was. So the Bush family, Mitt Romney, I remember the primaries in 2012, there was a series of candidates challenging Mitt Romney, sort of representing the more populist currents within the party. At the end of the day, those, those challenges, those populist challenges wilted away and Mitt Romney asserted himself. What Donald, and the people thought that's what was going to happen in 2016 as well. Well, Donald Trump, he's, you know, he's, he's going to flame out, wait a month or two and he'll flame out the way that, you know, uh, Michelle Bachman and Herman Cain and, you know, all the others did in 2012. What surprised people was Trump's staying power. And I think what he demonstrated was that these populist currents that the Republican Party have been nurturing for a generation now have finally become the party at the grassroots. Um, and there's been, that those, those elements have infused their way into the party in ways that they have now swamped the, the more mainstream party establishment. I, I would argue this is Donald Trump's party today, you know, until um, unless something blows up and there's some crisis. But this is Donald Trump's party, um, and it's those populist currents that have fed into it that have that really made it his party. So are you seeing populist currents and especially the Christian evangelical Christian right as one and the same? Uh, well, they're part. I think. I mean, the the pop the. 
the populist currents are sort of representing the anti-establishment side, but then there's a part of that that certainly the Christian evangelicals are part of that. And, you know, they sort of you know tap on to sort of an ethno-nationalist and religious particular. You know, the, the, you know this understanding that the United States is a, is a, a Christian country as a central part of the identity. So that's a reflection of a more particularistic identity as opposed to something that's more cosmopolitan or multicultural. Um, and so that's part of it. But also, you know, I mean, the, at the grassroots, you know, a lot of things have sort of worked their way into the Republican Party. The, you know, um, you know, gun clubs and, you know, the NRA networks. Um, there are other elements within this. Certainly the anti-abortion movement, which becomes closely tied to the evangelical Christian movement. Um, but certainly the evangelical Christian movement is a, is a key part of grassroots republicanism. And I, I, don't, I don't think the, the Democratic Party doesn't really have those kinds of civic networks throughout the country, especially in, in smaller town, heartland areas, in urban areas maybe, yes. But in heartland areas, I think the grassroots of the Republican Party between evangelical churches and local gun clubs Republicans have much more of a civic base um, than what the Democrats do. Uh, yes, in the back, and then I'll come up. Back up. Um, unlike uh, several of the other uh, speakers in this series, uh, you have said uh, almost nothing about uh, feminism and uh, gender issues, and I wonder where they fit in your... Uh, yeah. Yeah, the, you know, populism often has a strong gendered element to it, yeah. um, and, and you can see that with Trump. The, you know, there's long been a, a gender gap between Republicans and Democrats, and I think the, the most recent election under Trump was the strongest we've ever seen. Um, although Trump clearly has been able to, you know, I mean, he, you know, Trump got a majority of the white female vote, we have to keep in mind, but his support among white males was, was much, was higher. Um, and, you know, we all know the kinds of things that he said. He clearly evokes a certain kind of, of um, a certain kind of machismo type of political leadership. Um, and this is something that's very common within, within populism. And I think what, one of the things I find very worrisome, a lot of these, a lot of the new, what we call far-right types of populisms, um, they have, there's a very strong uh, opposition to women's rights that tends to be part of this mobilization that I, that I think is very worrisome. Uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, you see versions of this. Um, and, you know, and in some ways, you know, efforts to sort of roll the clock back to the times, we, you know, when you know, women's, you know, roles in society were much more stark, you know, sharply delimited. Um, and so I think this is very much a part of this kind of populist leadership, um, at least the, the right-wing strand of it that we're seeing in a lot of places. Yeah, Carlos, do you want to Yeah, it was like in the economic axis, um, yeah, I mean, one could think of Trump as kind of the representation of rentier interests in a way. You know, so it's like, you know, what allows him to move so freely along the economic axis? I mean, yeah. his interests are really represent a very different type of, you know, the landlord group. Yeah. You know, then it's like he doesn't. You it's know, not Wall so, Street. I mean, I just I was wondering if you know you yeah. have thought about you know because it seems a little con, you know constrained you know market state. Right. Yeah. No. And well, this is where you know and you know the cloud talks about you know populist leaders you know, how they can become an empty signifier that pulls different strands together. Right. But part of what you get, I mean, what 
what the Republican Party has long believed is that there's not two axes, there's one axis, there's a left and a right, and that this you know, folds onto that. And that if you believe that evangelical Christians should also believe in free markets, you know, but you know, it's not at all obvious that there's anything about being an evangelical Christian that means you should also be a supporter of market orthodoxy. You might support more protectionist kinds of, of economic policies, or maybe you support redistributive economic policies to support the poor. So it's, it's not obvious. And it's, in a sense, what Trump has done is he's demonstrated the contradictions and the fact that these things do not necessarily bundle together. But what he does is, an empty, as a populist empty signifier, he's, he sort of is able to pull together these different strands that may have real differences among them. And part of the way he does it is you offer each one of them at least part of what they want. Right? So for the ones who really do believe in free markets, they get the tax cuts, which is probably what they cared about most, and they get the deregulation of oil and gas and other industries, which probably they care about second most. And they clearly they don't like trade protectionism or economic nationalism, as, as somebody very correctly called it. Um, but they'll hold their nose and put up with it if they get enough of the other things that, that they want. Or if the alternative to Trump is Bernie Sanders or something, then this, you know, they're going to support, they're going to support Trump. And, you know, for the Christian evangelicals, uh, look, I mean, obviously Trump is, does not come from that cultural, you know, landscape. He's so not, much. not, what's that? They've gained so much. Yeah, I mean, what they, what they care about is the courts more than anything else. They want the Supreme Court. And Trump has, you know, made a bargain, basically. And so you give these different currents who don't necessarily map together on one spectrum, Right? They may be orthogonal, but you have to find, that's, that's politics, is you, you construct and pull things together. And that's what populism does very, very effectively, and that's what Trump has done here, because uh, he clearly does not represent the economic orthodoxy of the Republican Party. Um, and he certainly is not an evangelical Christian who adheres to those particular moral standards, which used to be paramount for the Christian evangelical community. But if what you really care about is abortion, um, and you want the Supreme Court to address that, you'll, you make political, you know, politics makes for strange bedfellows, as they say. Uh, and so if, Trump, if Donald Trump is the vehicle that helps to serve those interests, that's what we see taking place. So that's how I see this. Yes? When the right uses this term, deep state, are they... Yeah. You think, is this kind of maybe, can we understand this as a kind of code for this institutionalized pluralism that you're talking about? They, they seem to think of it, I think, as a little bit more conspiratorial yeah. than institutional, but it does seem that they're also kind of anxious to capture that and maybe make it into the yeah. uh, agency, the political yeah. agency that they claim it is. Right, right. And in some ways, you know, the, sort of the logic of, of a populist leadership or any, any sort of, of autocratic leadership is you don't want constraints. I mean, pop, populist figures, they're always anti-institutional, right? And, uh, you know, institutions are restraints. They tie your hands. They force you to compromise. Uh, they give access to your opponents. So any sort of autocratic populist leadership is likely to be anti-institutional, and, and that's part of why you know sort of the you know the, the you know the routine challenges and you know the the verbal attacks on any sort of restraining institutions is is part of what we're seeing. Um, but the notion of the deep state, I mean, you're right in, in a sense. 
to the extent that that deep state um, is nonpartisan and it's independent of executive control, it's seen as a constraint on the Trump administration and something that, you know, that, that is counter to what they're trying to do. Now, to the extent that you can use the institutional leverage you control to take over the elements of the deep state, then it begins to serve your project. Um, you know, but to the extent that the FBI, you know, I mean, you know, they're accusing the FBI of, you know, of, uh, you know, of, in, of, you know, surveillance of the Trump campaign, sort of this deep state um, that would be, you know, that was, in, you know, investigating, which, you know, which they were doing for, you know, because of some of, you know, some of the, the signs that they had of things that were going on. But ultimately, you know, to the extent that they can re sort of reshape the FBI from the top down, and, you know, they talk about using it to go after, you know, the Congress people that were, you know, part of the investigation. But anyway, if you can, you know, transform those institutions, you capture and transform them, um, and then they, they become instruments for your project rather than a deep state that is, that is impeding you. Right, but that's, those are the ways, those are the kinds of institutions that ultimately get politicized in this kinds of context, um, where it becomes increasingly difficult for any, for any institutions to be seen as independent or neutral or nonpartisan. Um, and to the extent that they are independent or nonpartisan, you know, they're treated by Fox News or Trump as a deep state that is a constraint on what he wants to do.